there's a great expression somewhere that if you're looking for a book on a specific topic and you can't find it, you inherit the obligation to write it. That's Joe Keenan, a happily retired journalist who lives in a Texas border town, talking about how he came up with Breaking Out of Beginner Spanish, one of my favorite books. And my experience was literally that. There were many interesting books out there. There were textbooks. There were books that were addressing different parts of the experience. But I never did find a book that described in plain language how to learn Spanish and what you're going to bump into and what are some of the likely obstacles and pitfalls and put it in prose as opposed to just a list of things. So that was my first thought was that, damn it, I wish I had the book like this. In this episode, producer Fernando Hernandez and I have a conversation with Joe Keenan about this inherited obligation that turned into a fascinating book, which has to this day sold over 120,000 copies, an outstanding figure for a university press, or any press for that matter. Stay tuned for some crucial tips for traveling to places where no one speaks your language, plus one of my favorite topics, Spanish dichos or sayings. I'm Steve Levine, and this is America the Bilingual. Joe grew up in Washington, D.C., but he currently lives very near the U.S.-Mexico border. I live in a town called Terlingua, which is the sort of gateway town to Big Bend National Park. It's a town of maybe 500 people on a good day. When was your first exposure to a language besides English? I went to a school that taught a lot of languages in high school and junior high. So I started learning Latin in seventh grade and took four years of Latin. I took a couple of years of French, I think four years of French as well. And then I started on Spanish all in high school. So I had a jumble of languages, but wasn't particularly proficient in any of them when I went off to college. In college, I continued partially with Spanish. I didn't major in it or dedicate myself too heavily to it, but I took a little bit of Spanish there as well. Joe was only 19 years old when he grabbed his backpack and went on a low-budget trip south of the border. It was his first time in Mexico. So it wasn't until I actually went to Mexico and understood that this was not a high school course or a college course. This is something people actually speak, this other language. That's what motivated me at least to take it seriously and to start learning it more, more thoroughly. I have the notebook still from where I was just sitting there looking out the window at things as they'd go by and wondering what the word was in Spanish. And I would look it up in my little Spanish dictionary and write it down in a notebook. And like I say, I still have that notebook. It's amusing to see that, but that's how it starts in a way, as you start putting names on things. Of course, that's when you start talking to people as well, something that you really don't do much in a high school or college course. You talk to everyday people. And what did your parents think about you um, venturing into Mexico by bus at that age? I don't think they were opposed to it. I think they thought it was me being adventurous. I'd already traveled around the U.S. a lot. You realize pretty quickly that most of the world doesn't speak your language. 
a moment of anxiety for travelers, for foreigners, is when you come into a town, you have no idea if this is the town you're supposed to get off at or not. Nowadays, I suppose you can look at your GPS on your phone, but back then I learned to read the doors of the taxis and look for a pharmacy because the pharmacies generally said what town they were in. The experience from that first trip compelled Joe to go back to Mexico and take a language course in Cuernavaca. When he finished, he moved to Mexico City, just a half hour away, and started working at Mexico City News, an English-language newspaper. I thought it was going to be a short-term job. I ended up staying nine years in Mexico City, working as a journalist. When did you first get the idea that maybe you should write a book on... Anglos or gringos learning Spanish. There's a great expression somewhere that if you're looking for a book on a specific topic and you can't find it, you inherit the obligation to write it. That's the way I've heard it said. And my experience was literally that. There were many interesting books out there, but I never did find a book that described in plain language how to learn Spanish and what you're going to bump into and what are some of the likely obstacles and pitfalls and put it in prose as opposed to just a list of things. And I kept looking for it, didn't find it, and eventually decided I should try to write it. The second inspiration, if you will, was after, as a journalist, I was working at a weekly magazine that a friend, a few friends and I put together in Mexico City called the Mexico Journal. It ran for three years in English. And the final page each week was a language column. And we took terms writing it, but we made the column, it was called Dr. Wordsworth. And we invented this figure of, a, of an old academic, somewhat pedantic gentleman who was writing under the name of Dr. Wordsworth, who would give tips to people reading the magazine in English on how to speak Spanish. So that was the immediate genesis where those columns, we produced I don't know, a hundred plus of them. And I took those columns, the ones that I had written, of course, and sent them off to a number of publishing houses when I first started looking to see if anybody would be interested in doing a book like that. That book was, of course, Breaking Out of Beginner Spanish, and it was published by University of Texas Press in 1995. They were very brave. I didn't have a history of writing books. But I had been a journalist, and I could show them clips. And they have a very strong Latin American department. And they actually gave me a little advance. I think, I can't remember exactly. I think it was something like 1500 bucks they gave me to take a shot at writing it. And so I went off and wrote it. Well, they, must, they must be very pleased with you. They were joking that they had to put a bust of me up in the lobby or something like that, because I was one of their only books that actually sold. This is a university press. They're not accustomed to books selling. That's really not their main interest. But this one has sold, I think, last I checked, 110, 120,000 copies. So, Steve, you're an avid buyer of Dicho's books, right? Yeah, I've been doing that for the last 15 years. So, for someone who's not familiar with the term, what is a Dicho? Yeah, a dicho or refrain is what in English we would call a saying or proverb. These nuggets of truth your grandparents may might lay on you. That's right. I really like this next part of the interview where we talk about another book by Joe. 
the one about Spanish dichos. I bought all of Dicho's books I could find. Yours was definitely the most fun. And the complete title is Dicho's The Wit and Whimsy of Spanish Sayings. And what I love so much about your book, Joe, is, is that you not only put the Dicho's in there, but you explain how and why and when they're used. And, um, and then even some of the jokes that people, that Spanish speakers make with these Dicho's to kind of uh, dress them up or because they're, they're, some of them are so common. Like, for example, in, in English, we say the early bird gets a worm. In Spanish, the usual way is el que madruga, Dios le ayuda, which he who uh, gets up early, God helps. And, and you pointed out that one of the jokes about that is el que madruga, Dios le arruga, if I'm saying that right, which... Uh, <laughs> he who gets up early, God wrinkles. So <laughs> I've started to say that uh, to my to my Spanish speaking friends, and it and it gets a, a laugh out of them. So tell us why why you wrote the Dicho's book. What was your aim there? I, I wrote the Dicho's book honestly because I just loved them, and I'd been collecting them first in Mexico, and then as I worked all across Latin America, I would come across a great. Dicho, and I would jot it down and put it in a file someplace. And to me, they're just the best expression of a language. They're the little gemstones that you come across when you're wading through the language, using it on a daily basis. And every now and then, somebody will use an expression that just perfectly captures what you're trying to say and does it with a certain amount of wit. I wanted to recognize all of those wonderful Dichos that people had taught me over the years. I think the favorite category of dichos for me are the ones that state the obvious. And for some reason, for saying the obvious thing, they become more powerful. There's one, la buena vida es cara, hay otra más barata, pero no es tan buena. And that's saying, there's, uh, <laughs> see, the good life is expensive. There's another one that's cheaper, but it's not as good. And it's a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. But it immediately gets a laugh, and then people say, yeah, that, that is true. And so those are the kind of expressions that I like. I like the ones that just reflect a really different worldview. One of my favorites is, a veces me siento a pensar y a veces no más me siento, which is sometimes I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit. And I just found <laughs> that to be a meditative, very philosophical statement, that if you can separate the times when you're sitting and thinking from the times that you're just sitting, I think that's a breakthrough in many respects. I have to say, Steve, those first two dichos you shared with Joe, I had never heard before. Really? Yeah, with a caveat, though. The sometimes I sit and think and sometimes I just sit is also the title of an album by Courtney Barnett, a musician from Australia. Also, our colleague Mim Harrison told me that Winnie the Pooh said it before. But I digress. Listen to my awe when I heard yet another favorite dicho from Joe. Have you heard the Cuando el Tecolote Canta, el Indio Muere? No, <laughs> that sounds so grim. It's very grim. In southern Mexico, I lived six years in, in Yucatan, in Merida, and that was a fairly prevalent expression. And then there's a second part of it, which is No es cierto, pero así sucede. Break it down for me. Okay, the first part. Cuando el tecolote canta, el indio muere, means when the owl sings, the Indian dies. The second one, no es cierto, pero así sucede, means it's not true, 
but that's how it goes. Here is Joe's take on that. Which we get that's not true, that can't be scientifically accurate, but honestly, it happens all the time. I particularly like some of the dichos that exist in Spanish, but really isn't an English equivalent, and this may be one of them. Que bonito es ver llover y no mojarse. How nice it is to watch the rain and not get wet. That's often used for people who are just sitting on the sidelines criticizing and saying, oh, you should do that better. You should do that. The quarterback should do a better job and the coach should do this. And it's saying, you're not doing a thing. You're not even, you don't even know how to play this game. So how nice it must be to sit on the sidelines and criticize and not have to lift a finger, essentially. Which other ones do you like, Steve? Oh, gosh, you should see my copy of the book. It's so marked up. Or how about this one? It's not really a dicho, but more an idiom. Hablar al calzón quitado. Yes, that's a pretty common expression and very descriptive, right? Yeah, and so translate it for us. I think I translate it as to speak with your underwear off, something like that. <laughs> and what does it mean? It means to bare your soul and to be completely honest and to exactly what you would think it would mean. Yeah, it doesn't have any sensual overtones. It's basically just being completely honest with somebody, as I understand it. So here's some pop culture reference. So A Calzón Quitado, that dicho, it's the title of a book by a former actress and dancer, Irma Serrano. Irma Serrano, exactly. Yeah, it was legendary that she became the mistress of some presidents of Mexico. Yes. And so in that case, it did have the double meaning that she was going to tell some honest tales, but about the times she didn't have for her interior clothing. Uh, a very good title. Yeah, That's good, a great good, title. Good catch there, Fernanda. The Dicho's book was the first book I read by Joe Keenan. But the Dicho's book is actually Joe's second book. The first one is Breaking Out of Beginner's Spanish. That's right. I wanted to delve into that first book a little bit more in our conversation with Joe. The only complaint I have about the book is that I, I wish you had titled it Breaking Out of Intermediate Spanish because I wouldn't be quite so embarrassed having it in my lap throughout Mexico. where And it's the kind of book that you don't just read once and say, oh, that was good. And I want to start with Appendix C, your last appendix. I think it's so fun that even people who, even Americans, Estado Unidenses, like me, who think they don't speak Spanish, actually do speak Spanish. There's so many words that from Spanish that have worked their way into the English language, and some of them we know come from Spanish. For example, adobe, amigo, bandito, fiesta, macho, manana, salsa, siesta. All English speakers know these words. Why did you make this appendix? First of all, a lot of those words, that's not a complete list. And some of the words on it have disputed etymologies as well. It's not clear where they came in exactly to which language, where they came from. But that's the point. And that's the point I was trying to make is that languages are not things that you put into a cast iron box and close with a key. And that each language is pure in and of itself. And Germans over here and French is over there. And they're just completely different. In fact, languages are constantly intermingling constantly, 
trading words, trading meanings within words. There was a, an effort to keep Spanish pure from all the Americanisms which come in. And I write about that in the book. It's not something I'm even opposed to. I think a lot of English words when used in Spanish just reflect laziness on the part of the learner of the language. So if I go to Mexico and start using American words for everything or English words for things that I see in Mexico, I'm just being a lazy speaker. I'm not learning correctly. But at the same time in the U.S., there was this effort to keep out Spanish speaking, to make Spanish speakers speak English, the English only movement, if you remember that. Fortunately, it's less strident now, but there was a whole effort to demand that everybody only use English and not let Spanish creep into, not use Spanish in official signs and official documents and that sort of thing. Do you think all Americans should learn Spanish? Let me put it this way. If I were a parent, would I want my children to have access to a second language and start learning it fairly young? And I think the answer to that is an absolute yes. I think there are already studies, and you've probably talked about them on this podcast, the studies showing that bilingual children perform better. They perform better on all sorts of tests. They've shown that being bilingual delays the onset of Alzheimer's by five or six years. They've shown the benefits repeatedly to having a second language. And it has to do with switching. Your brain learns to switch back and forth from different words, obviously, but also different worldviews, because each language has a different worldview, has a different syntax, different way of organizing thoughts. And so children, if they pick that up early, especially, are able to switch back and forth. And that just benefits their brain overall. So that's one obvious benefit. But the other benefit is you get to speak to so many more people and learn from so many more people. If you speak one language, you're limiting the number of people that you can learn from tremendously. You have a section on tricksters. These are words that we think we know as an English speaker, and we try to use them in Spanish, but we can get into trouble doing it. Well, I think the common ones are, you know, for the American, that's the classic, typical American tourist comes down and says, oh, Estoy muy embarazado. Which means? They're saying that they're pregnant. (laughs) uh, Most of them, like I say, are are like that. They're harmless. And it's just, you could imagine a situation where saying the wrong thing would really uh, cause a lot of anxiety in people. But for the most part, I think it's just learning more precise language, learning Spanish or any other language more precisely. You have to learn which of those words perhaps evolved in different directions from a common root. They call them false cognates, and they're words that may exist in both languages, but they may be saying really different things. They're so useful. And so was your chapter called 10 Ways to Avoid Being Taken for a Gringo. I had the most fun writing that one. Bet you did. And one of them that I found so useful was on, not on language at all, but on body language and on appearance. And you make a comment in there about how generally in Mexico, people dress a little bit more formally, a little bit more dressed up than they do in the United States. And that saved me, that changed the way my wife and I packed for our trip. And I'd been to Mexico before, but it had been a while and we were going to big cities, Mexico City and Guadalajara. And after reading that, 
I left all my shorts at home <laughs> and the sandals. I left those at home and put in the long pants instead. And I did feel more comfortable because of this. Mexico has changed. Latin America has changed. But it's still not considered cool to go into a place of worship and wearing skimpy clothing. It's just not. And, and it shouldn't be, probably. So if you want to go see somebody's place of worship, at least put on a decent outfit, right? But there's also the point, and there's the expression, como te ven, te tratan, which is how they look at you, that's how they're going to treat you. And it, again, maybe it shouldn't be that way, but the fact is that if you dress like a bum, it's more likely that you'll get treated like a bum. And the uh, one of the chapters you have, The Secret Life of Verbs. And I want to read a sentence from your under the subhead of the future. The future is not a particularly hard tense to learn, and when to use it is pretty obvious. Still, it can be simplified considerably by remembering the following rule. Ignore it. (laughs) And you explain how the present tense is used far more often in Spanish than it is to represent the future than it is in English. Or the verb to go and the, I guess it would be the infinitive, right? Voy voy a comer instead of comeré. Voy a comer means I'm going to eat, whereas comeré is I will eat. So yeah, I'll stand by that advice. I'm sure that offended some teachers somewhere, and I apologize for that. But for the most part, I almost never use the future. Every Spanish learner coming from the English point of view, has to learn the difference between the two verbs of to be, the ser and the estar. And ser is the more permanent, as you explained. But I have to read another paragraph, a short paragraph you wrote about estar. Estar, in comparison, is a flake. It is the variable, flighty, here, today, gone, tomorrow verb to be. A star covers personality traits that are ephemeral and ethereal. It describes things that change from one minute to the next. It's an all-over-the-place, out-of-control kind of verb. It's untrustworthy. It's slippery. You would never buy a used car from a verb like a star. What's interesting about ser y estar is, and I think I mentioned it in the book, I can't quite recall, but at some point I was speaking to a friend in Mexico or elsewhere and we were talking about it. And I said, do you, native speaker, ever get them confused? Do you ever make a mistake with ser y estar? And they said, no, never. In fact, no native speaker would ever make a mistake with ser y estar. And that's a hard thing for a person learning Spanish to believe coming from a language where there's only one verb covering both concepts. But I think to me, it made the point that these aren't just words that you have to learn. They're different use. They're actually talking about entirely different concepts. And those two concepts are so distinct that when a person learns them, there's no room for making a mistake. You also point out that learning any language takes far longer than most of us appreciate. I'm always amazed by those ads for things that learn perfect Spanish in six weeks or something like that. And i I suspect that they're not being fully honest with their customers unless they're onto some magic formula that I don't know about. But the other thing to say, and this is important to people who are learning a language or be thinking about learning a language, is it's not that you have to 
slave over this and sweat and be miserable learning it for 10 years before you're actually able to speak. You can have a lot of fun during those 10 years while you're learning the language. And in fact, learning the language itself is fun. That's why I push back a little bit because if you make it sound too hard, people will say, ah, it's not worth doing. I think you can get pretty quickly to a stage where you're able to communicate. And then that's when the learning starts going exponential because you're hearing back, you're getting positive or negative reinforcement from what you're saying to people. And the last chapter of your book, Joe, you talk about the heavy influence that English can have on Spanish and the advice you give English speakers learning Spanish is in this sentence here, avoiding Anglicisms in your Spanish is generally synonymous with being a careful and respectful speaker of the language. Can you elaborate on that a bit? I'm not a purist that I think you have to avoid any foreign words in your language if you're learning a language. But there is a point where if you're just taking words from the language, let's say English, your native language, and using them instead of learning the right word in Spanish, you're just being lazy. And it's a lack of respect to the language that you're learning if you won't take the time to figure out what the right word is. So that's why I, that for me is where I draw the line. But you get these crazy examples. So, you know, the vacunar la carpeta, the which sounds like I'm going to vacuum the carpet, but it really means I'm going to I'm going to vaccinate the file folder or something like that. So you start <laughs> using the wrong words and you're just off in a whole different world. And so that's why I think it's on us as language learners to take the time to learn the right words for these things. And then as you realize that other people, native speakers are incorporating words from your language, then you can use those as well. I think your advice, if I read you correctly, is let the native speakers do it at their own pace. And as a, a Spanish learner, try not to do it. And so we don't want to be that person. We want to be the person that actually learns the, learns the language and learns the culture. In your preface to your book, you seem to say that the United States, in fact, seems to be changing. And you write here, point out that many, in fact, millions of Spanish speakers in the United States are not of Latin origin, not Latinos. And you write that it's not really the point that Spanish or Hispanics are taking over the United States, but that being bilingual is fast becoming commonplace in the country. This time, bilingualism might just stick to the sides of the melting pot in a way that it never managed to during previous periods of U.S. history. What are you saying there? I think the attitudes towards bilingualism have changed, and I think they've changed in society. I think they've changed somewhat in, in families. I think there was a time where immigrants, for instance, would not want their children to learn the language from their country of origin because they wanted to assimilate them as quickly as possible and make them into Americans. And, and of course, there's a long his official history of trying to deny people the right to use their native, their language of origin. I, anecdotally, I think children of immigrants are still, are, feel more enabled and empowered to maintain the language of their parents. 
than they may have generations ago. So I think all that is trending in the direction that being able to speak more than one language is a source of pride rather than a source of some sort of shame, the way it, it seems to have been earlier in this country's history. I want to read two, two more paragraphs that really talk about language learning in general. And so we're not just talking about learning Spanish, but any language. Ultimately, what makes learning a language worthwhile is that by learning any new language, you learn more about your own language. And by paying more attention to all languages, you really do pay more attention to the world around you. You will also inevitably pay more attention to the people around you, to how they think, and to the fact, at first alarming, that not everyone on the planet thinks the way you or I do. In fact, language learning is an act of empathy, ultimately, that abiding sense that one's way is not the only way to sense and to make sense of the human experience, to live, love, and explore the fleeting moment of lucidity we call life. So I think that's wonderfully written, Joe. Let me ask you, can you elaborate on that or have you said it all there? It's a truth that none of us learn our native language in the way that we learn other subjects in school. You absorb your language early on in life from speakers and you just begin using it and there's a whole science of how that happens. So it's actually fascinating when you start studying your native language as a foreign language and see how that must be. And honestly, my respects to anybody who learns English as a second language or third language, because English is the most ridiculous, illogical, confusing, nonsensical language that you can imagine. And pronunciations change for no reason at all. By the way, Fernando is nodding vigorously right now. Yep. And I've been learning English for over 33 years my respects because English is a very hard language to learn compared to, I think, Spanish. Spanish, the sound, each vowel sounds the same no matter where it is. And you learn that and there's no confusion. English, who knows what vowel sound we want to assign to a particular word. So you almost have to memorize all the different words. And then just the expressions. My, one of my, I ran into a friend in Brazil a couple of years ago who I had met 25 years ago in Brazil. And we get to talking, he goes, you're, he had been learning English. And he goes, I still remember what you told me. He says, what can you expect of a language where you can chop a tree down and then you chop it up? He says, how am I supposed to make sense of that? And that was, that's one of the examples I gave to him when I was relearning English, looking at it through the eyes of somebody learning a foreign language. There's just a lot of nonsensical stuff in English. It's a beautiful language as well because of all that complexity and intricacy but it's a devil to learn and hats off to anybody who's managed to do it. What did writing these books mean to you and mean, why did you do it? And why do you do what you do? I believe in bilingualism or trilingualism as a value, as something that's good. I think it's going to make the world better if people engage more on languages that aren't their own native language. I think it opens our minds. And so I figured here's a quick way I can help some of these people do that and show them some of the some of the obstacles I encountered, some of the pitfalls I encountered, and some of the solutions I discovered along the way. But it's also, I just love languages. So it was a joy for me to be writing both of these books. And I wrote them both much faster than I thought I would, because once I got started, they just came pouring out. 
We hope you've enjoyed our talk with Joe Keenan. Fernando, let's roll the credits. If you like our podcast, please share it, send it to a friend, and be one of our reviewers on Spotify or Apple Podcast. You'll be helping to spread the power of bilingualism to do good in the world. And listen to other inspiring American bilinguals in recent episode from this season five, including concert pianist Andrew Van Oyen, Peruvian-American novelist Natalia Silvester, celebrity chef Patty Hinnich, global storyteller and Duolingo podcast host Martina Castro, Our thanks to members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode. Especially Fernando Hernandez, that great guy who wrote this episode. <laughs> and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio. Which also provides sound design and mixing. And to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director. And Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. For America the Bilingual, thanks for listening. Gracias por escuchar. How'd I do? <laughs> you always do great, Steve. You always do great. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs>